Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Dan O'Donoghue, the Northern Agenda's Westminster editor. And on this week's episode, we'll be examining a new report which has found poor public transport is costing the North's largest cities more than £16 billion a year. And as the government's levelling up plans gradually take shape, North of Time Metro Mayor Jamie Driscoll tells my colleague Rob Parsons how he wants mayoral authorities across the North to be given more control over the way money is invested. We had a look at the numbers and we said, look, is there a demand here? Yeah, there really is. Uh, is there a demand for a, about half a billion? Yes, there really is. And would that create around 15,000 jobs? Yes, it would. So the, the earnings on 15,000 jobs pays Treasury an absolute fortune, so they win. Uh, the growth of the companies is the, the company's owners win because their businesses are more valuable. We all win because we end up with healthier, happier people who, who are in good work. Um, and the region wins because we end up with a big asset that grows over time. The Hall Daily Mail's local government reporter, Angus Young, also tells us five things you need to know about politics in his patch. That is one of the reasons why there's been this hesitation over going for a, a mayor-led authority, because I think Labour and Hull are quite nervous of actually the prospect of having a perhaps a Conservative mayor in charge of what would be Hull. And and equally, the East Riding traditionally slightly concerned about Hull's demands and priority, if you like, being the the major sort of city and the major employment hub of the the area. But before we get to all that, I'm delighted to be joined now by Andrew Carter, the Chief Executive of the Centre for Cities Think Tank, who have this week published research on the state of the UK's public transport network and its impact on productivity. Andrew, hello. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. I, I wondered if you could perhaps just start by outlining some of the key findings of this report that, that you've published this week. Yeah, so I think the central kind of thesis is, you know, we know that our big cities in the UK underperform compared to their European counterparts. And yet our big cities are absolutely crucial to the levelling up agenda. If we want more prosperity in more parts of the country, our big cities are going to be crucial to that. One of the things that's often kind of said, which is a particular problem in our big cities, is their city region transport systems, you know, that they're not good enough and there isn't sufficient activity, again, particularly when you compared to Europe. So we wanted to have a kind of look at that and, and just get under the detail and see what the role of transport was, but actually look at some of the other factors that we think might be driving the performance of what we do. So what we find at a headline is, if you look at our British cities, our big British cities, on average, four in 10 of the people living in those cities can get into the city centre within 30 minutes using public transport. So about 40% of the population can get into those city centres. When you look at our European counterparts, and it does vary, but when you look at our European counterparts, the average is closer to 70%. So seven in 10 people living in European cities somewhere, whether it's Bordeaux or Turin or Lyon or, or Dortmund, they can get into their city centres. Uh, you know, seven in 10 of them can do that. So that's a kind of interesting variation and difference. So then you begin to think about, well, why is that? And one thing is, well, our transport systems are not very good. And that's part of the story, particularly if you look at somewhere like Sheffield or if you look at Leeds or if you look at Manchester, their transport systems are not as good as their European counterparts. But that's not such the case for places like Glasgow or Newcastle or Nottingham. So transport has a role to play. But what you notice in all of our big urban areas is that there are just fewer people living within that 30 minute area. 
you know, when you compare Lyon to Nottingham or Leeds to Marseille, you notice that there is just many, many more people living close to the urban core in Marseille than there is in Leeds. And so that's part of the story as well. We often focus on transport. That's important. But it's non-transport things that we really care about as well. There's some kind of quite eye-popping figures in, in the report. I think you estimate Manchester could add around $8.9 billion to its economy if certain planning changes were made. I think in Leeds, that figure's around $2.8 billion. How easy would it be to make some of these changes that you say are kind of vital to, I suppose, unlock some more productivity in, the, in these areas? I mean, is it as drastic as we have to knock it all down and start again? Or Yeah, no, quite, exactly. So I think some of it is, is, a, is a bit easier than others. So I'll give you an example. You know, you talked about, you know, we heard in the spend and review last week, you know, £7 billion there or thereabouts going to be spent on improving city region transport systems across our big cities in the Midlands and the, and the North particularly. So one of the things we could be thinking about, well, is as we improve those services, as we add new tram lines or as we add new bus lines, let's think about how we can provide housing at a denser level along those lines than we currently do. You know, if you look at pictures of European cities and British cities, what you'll notice is that often around train stations or transport nodes in the in Britain, you know, you get semi-detached housing. At best, you get terraced housing. Whereas if you go to Europe, you're actually getting three or four-story mid-rise kind of apartments. So I think we can do that because we're going to be adding new transport connections and kit, and we can densify the housing around that. That's the first thing. I think the second thing where it begins to become more difficult is then we have to really think about how we allow, for example, our suburbs, so not the very core of our cities, which have been increasing density over time, but our kind of suburbs, the outer ring, you know, a mile or two miles away from the city centre. How do we allow those over time to marginally improve the density, add in extra layers, you know, where buildings are knocked down or new developments are happening, encouraging a denser scale rather than simply a replication of the existing scale. And that will probably need a bit of revision of the planning system. It's quite difficult to do that. And I think in some places, government hinted at this in the spending review, there's going to be a bit of funding and a bit of investment that's needed to actually facilitate and enable some of that housing to happen, because it won't necessarily happen if we just leave it to, uh, to local circumstances. You mentioned some of the, the extra cash that was announced the other week. I mean, do you think that goes anywhere near far enough to start to see some of the change that you know your report suggests is needed to, to unlock some of this extra money? Yeah, no, I think it's an incredibly welcome and important announcement by the government for two reasons. One, you know, £7 billion is £7 billion and we shouldn't sneeze at that. But also, it goes back to that, my first point, it was also targeted at our big city regions, and that's incredibly important. So I welcome it in that respect, targeting and size. But you're right, this in some respects is the kind of down payment. You know, to give you an order of the kind of scale, you know, when the National Infrastructure Commission looked at this issue, it said that, you know, really our big city regions need in the order of 30 to 40 billion pounds worth of investment. So we've had 7 billion, that's a good down payment but there is certain ways to go. So I think, you know, we're going to need to go further. And that will be a mix of government investment and I think local investment as well. But also I would be hopeful is that if we can signal to, to developers and to investors that, you know, part of the ambition is to make Greater Manchester a better place to live because of the changes, then that attracts in waves of private investment that maybe is kind of sitting on its hands is uncertain. So I think, you know, that the public investment always and the public signals then make the private investors 
uh, more confident of investing. And I think you know you'll see more of that in Leeds or in Manchester or in Liverpool over time. So I, I'm hopeful on both counts, but definitely we need to go. You know, we need to go further. I think everybody recognises that. While we're on transport, I mean, the integrated rail plan is is coming down the track, or or so we're told. How important do you think things like Northern Powerhouse Rail and HS2? are to productivity in, in the north? So I think they are important. I would put them in in a sliding scale order, I suppose. One would be our city region transport systems. That's most of what happens in our place. You know, getting get Greater Manchester, Greater Leeds, Greater Liverpool, get those systems working effectively, effectively grow the size of the, the city by allowing more people to access economic opportunities within their city region. That's priority one from a productivity point of view. Secondly, then, is the connections and links between our city regions. So that's, you know, Leeds to Manchester or Manchester to to Liverpool. You know, getting those, making them reliable, making them frequent, making them relatively cost attractive. I think that's the second order. And then I think, you know, there's the HS2 question, which undoubtedly will affect, you know, the performance of our places, better connect places along the route and indeed into London. But I think for, you know, for the overall prosperity of the North, I would see that as the third option or the third priority compared to the previous two. So, you know, city region systems, Northern Powerhouse Rail, and then HS2. That's the way I kind of think about that. And obviously the reality will be, as you know, even if we do HS2 to its full extent, if we then don't have functioning city region transport systems, the impacts will be massively delayed. It's like having, you know, fast links into somewhere and when you get there, you can't get around because, you know, there is no other, you know, there's no transport system. So, you know, I think we, we need to kind of think about both and all of them working together, but I would do them in that order. Now, followers of politics in the North could be forgiven for being a bit bewildered by the smorgasbord of different funds that our region's local leaders can bid for to invest in their local areas and improve their economic prospects, as well as the £4.8 billion levelling up fund, which has been in the news of late. There's the Towns Fund, the Community Renewal Fund, the Urban Transport Fund and the Future High Streets Fund, to name but a few. All require hard-pressed local authorities to put time and resource into preparing bids for, usually with no guarantee of success. All of which means the process of tackling regional inequalities and levelling up, to use Boris Johnson's mantra, feels very uneven and often doesn't allow northern areas themselves to have enough of a say in what happens to them. One man proposing a solution to this troubling trend is Jamie Driscoll the Labour Mayor for North of Tyne, who represents a population of more than 800,000 people in Newcastle, North Tyneside and Northumberland. His report, published recently by the influential Royal Society of Arts think tank, puts forward a series of bold proposals giving mayoral authorities like his and others across the North more control over the way money is invested locally. Perhaps his most eye-catching proposal is the suggestion of a £500 million regional wealth fund similar to the sovereign wealth funds seen in places like Singapore and Norway to boost the growth of small businesses. It's a timely intervention ahead of the levelling up white paper, which will set out exactly how the government plans to improve the life chances of people in areas like the North East, where investment has for decades lagged behind that of London and the South East. So, Jamie Driscoll, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Rob. So, tell me more about what you're proposing in this paper and the essence of the problem that this idea is trying to address? I think you hit the nail on the head when you described levelling up and and found it difficult to describe. We will have levelled up 
when we are generating as much wealth here as places like London and the Southeast. So how do we do that? It requires investment. It wasn't always the case, by the way, that the Northeast um, was not a center of wealth generation. I mean, it was for 100 years before the 1980s. Uh, we were one of the richest parts of the country. We had a lot of heavy industry, but it all got closed very, very quickly, and nothing really replaced it. So rather than the competitive bidding approach that government seems to take, which is a zero-sum game, you know, if one place wins, another place loses, and we're in competition against each other, it doesn't increase the pot at all. What I'm talking about is investment. And anybody who's, who's run a business, anybody who knows anything about economic development, knows that it's investment that boosts productivity, it boosts real incomes, and it's real incomes that close health divides. We've got some of the best hospitals in the country here and some of the worst health at the same time. The only way to square that is by recognising that actually incomes are lower. So how do we fix it? At the moment, for example, borrowing, uh, central government borrowing, is so close to zero as to effectively be a negative real interest rate once you account for inflation. So if we were to borrow money and invest it in small businesses locally, we would create employment. We would, as a result of creating employment, improve life outcomes for thousands and thousands of people in our area. That would raise the amount of money going to Treasury. It would pay income tax, it would pay national insurance contributions, it would get economic growth. And our ownership, part ownership of these companies would give them an opportunity to grow that at the moment isn't there. It would then pay the money back to us so that we have a source of income that's independent of central government bidding. It's a way of generating wealth in our economy that pays for itself. Just to explore a couple of the proposals in more detail, the regional wealth fund. I see in the foreword to the report, Lord Jim O'Neill, one of the former treasury minister who sort of helped come up with the Northern powerhouse idea, he, he really praises the idea of a regional wealth fund as something that's done successfully in Singapore and, you know, it might be considered around some areas of the UK. So just to explain it to people who don't understand it, where does the money come from for a £500 million regional wealth fund? And, and, and what, what would it do? How would it be different to, to what we have at the moment? At the moment, you might have seen uh, the Chancellor say in the budget, you know, we can't borrow anymore. I think a lot of people don't realise where central government borrows. So the uh, hundreds of billions that the government has borrowed through COVID, it has borrowed using quantitative easing. This is where the Bank of England buys the bonds that the government issues. And then the government, when it pays interest on these bonds, pays it to the Bank of England, who pays it straight back to the Treasury. The government is borrowing from itself. It's literally creating money. And it's doing that, but not in a way that's necessarily sustainable. So when you are borrowing for regional wealth fund, you are borrowing for valid and sustainable commercial enterprises. So it's not big schemes of, of laying millions of pounds worth of tarmac. It's directly into small firms to generate wealth, local firms to scale up and grow. One of the problems that a lot of these firms have is that things like the British Business Bank and other investors, I spoke to a lot of investment fund uh, CEOs, actually, as well as investment fund managers on this. And they say, oh, well, if it's only a million pounds, we're not going to bother with it. Uh, and I know of cases locally where, you know, small businesses need 85 grand and they've got the business plan and they've got the MOUs from the people who are going to buy their stuff. And they say, and no one will lend me 85,000 pounds. And then someone will say, oh, why don't you put your house up? 
uh, as collateral. And they'll say, because I don't own one. And there's a huge amount there. So talking to the, the Northeast Fund, which is one of the previously European-backed funds, and these things are only over the last 10 years. And the whole point of the growth fund is you keep it going for a long period of time. That's where, where its real growth comes from. And we had a look at the numbers and we said, well, is there a demand team? Said, yeah, there really is. Uh, is there a demand for a, about half a billion? Yes, there really is. And would that create around 15,000 jobs? Yes, it would. So the, the earnings on 15,000 jobs pays Treasury an absolute fortune. So they win. Uh, the growth of the companies is the, the company's owners win because their businesses are more valuable. We all win because we end up with healthier, happier people who are in good work. Um, and the region wins because we end up with a big asset that grows over time. Now, there's a number of ways you can approach it, but it will be run on a commercial basis. It would be lending to businesses largely through equity, not loans. So it would be taking a share in businesses to get them scaled up and started. Far, far too often, good ideas come out of companies here that don't get the backing they need, and then they end up going to London to do it. So that's really what we're trying to fix with a regional wealth fund. So you're saying to government effectively, give us half a billion and we will make sure that you more than get back your investment on that because, you know, because we're, we're going to, we, we have the knowledge of what of who needs this money locally and how best to, to, to grow it. And, and not only give us the money, actually lend us the money. So, you know, what have they got to lose? Um, and there's, this is the approach we've taken with the combined authority. You know, we, although mayors are very high profile, the amount of money we've got in our investment funds is really quite limited. So it's £20 million a year for the north of time. Uh, and you compare that to the amount of money that gets spent dealing with things like obesity. It's orders of magnitude greater. So we're in a position of knowing what works. We're going to make a difference to the economy with not a lot of money. It has to be about really changing where the money flows to make sure that, that it's irrigating here. So, you know, the metaphor is you don't want a downpour and all the water to run off. You want it to soak into the ground and nurture the roots. It's interesting because down in South Yorkshire, I know Dan Jarvis is making a similar offer to government. He gets a few million pounds each year as part of his devolution deal from the gain share arrangement. And he's basically said to the government he wants half a billion up front because that's where he'll be able to you know, front load the investment and make the most difference. But obviously, you've made the case strongly previously that you can't level up from Whitehall. But of course, that ultimately, as the system is at the moment, it, it's up to officials in central government to decide on the benefits of the approach that you're outlining. And I suppose a lot of what you're proposing would require them to let go of the purse strings a bit, let go of the levers that they're holding on to quite tightly at the moment. I mean, from the conversations that you've had with people in in SW1, like, do you, do you think they're open-minded enough to consider something like what you're proposing? I think a regional wealth fund is actually surprisingly easy to do. Um, all it requires is, is someone competent to administer it. You know, we've got a combined authority that hasn't put a foot wrong in terms of delivery. Um, it's way ahead of its job creation targets. Um, so we do have that credibility. Um, but what we really want is just an interest rate that's reasonably low. Um, so there are other routes that we can take, even if Treasury aren't backing this. But there's a, a couple of other things in the, the report that I wrote for the RSA that go beyond this. So one of them is about prevention. Another one is about earn back for the jobs we create. Um, uh, so when we look at something like obesity, 
Public Health England estimates that's going to be £49.9 billion a year it's going to cost us as a country by 2050. That's a huge sum of money, 50 billion quid every year, dealing with the consequences of ill health, something that's entirely preventable. The problem is that central government funding has long been, it's not, you know, I'm not <laughs> the first to, to point out the failings of the current government, but all governments have had this problem that you can't transfer between departments easily. So if you're going to fix something like obesity, one of the best ways to do it is to change the transport system so that people walk a bit more, so that people cycle a bit more, so that people use public transport rather than sitting in traffic jams with their hearts pounding, you know, lining the, their arteries with cholesterol. Um, so the problem you've got is if you invest in a better active travel system that saves the NHS money down the line, how do you pay that money back for your active travel system? The NHS isn't going to give you the money for something that is going to benefit the country in 20 years' time. So this is where Invest to Save comes in, and it is difficult. So I spoke to a lot of people, um, in a lot of officials, a lot of uh, ex-officials, a lot of economists, about the best way to do this. And we want to be starting some pilots at scale. Um, there was a wonderful example done in the Northeast a few years back, Gentoo, the housing provider, did it where they found that £5,000 would insulate someone's home, get them a new boiler. Now, boilers for climate reasons would need something different. Um, and these were in old homes. Um, and people saved money on the heating bills. The rooms were warmer, despite burning less gas. Um, but in particular, they didn't go to see the GP. They cut those um, emergency admissions to hospital by 70%, GP visits by 30%. And by the time you'd added the cost of that over a period of time, it was cheaper to just pay people to insulate their homes than it was to fix their health problems. So these are the sort of things I'm also asking for. And when we go out for another devolution deal, that's certainly something that I'll be wanting to get. This idea that we are spending money fixing preventable problems. We need to spend up front. Our transport system costs, uh, the Northeast transport budget is around 160 million a year. The obesity in the same footprint is 10 times that, 1.65 billion a year. Why are we wasting money fixing things that are preventable now? We've got to get on top of this. Often when central government is asked about the possibility of devolving more powers to mayors along the lines of what you described, they often come back and say, well, metro mayors need to be more accountable. I know in a recent event, you said you'd be kind of open to more accountability, but to be more specific, so what kinds of accountability would you be willing to accept if it meant getting more powers? Would it just be sort of more transparency about your results or would you even be prepared to sort of for the funding that you get to be dependent on how successful you are in getting the results? Like what, what kind of things are we are we talking about? Yeah, yeah, I did say um, that we were all up for more accountability. And I'm sure that's cross-party as well, not just Labour mayors. It was Labour mayors I was talking to at the time. Um, but we are actually about the most accountable politicians in the country. We are directly elected with a personal mandate. We have the, our cabinets are made up of the leaders of our local authorities. We don't get to choose who's in our cabinets. Um, we have overview and scrutiny committees. I have um, an investment panel. Um, and then every five years, we have to go through a gateway review with central government. So there is no one more accountable than a Metro Met to start with. But the process... I had a good conversation, and um, to avoid embarrassment, I'm not going to say which ministers, but these were the Conservative ministers. 
um, and saying, why is it that it's so hard to get anything devolved, particularly from Treasury? And they said, well, it's because they don't trust you. It's not you, James. They don't trust anyone. That's kind of Treasury's raison d'etre is not to trust anybody. They won't give you anything that they've then lost control of. So what I've proposed is the idea that, well, for every job I create through my combined authority, it's not just me, obviously lots of people involved, um, then why can't we have the first 18 months payroll taxes back, but not some theoretical, the actual. So if we create jobs on 50 grand a year, we get more back than if we're creating jobs on 20 grand a year, which is good, which is what everyone wants. If we get people off benefits, let's have the first 18 months benefits statement as well. Because we've all seen with various kind of outsourced back to work programs, the cherry pick, the easy ones, the people who are probably going to go into work anyway. But if we're incentivized to get people who often because of you know very tragic life stories, are a long way from the labour market. If we invest in those people and get them working, the benefit savings should go to us to fund the programmes. And I'm quite happy to be accountable on that basis, to run it effectively as a public sector um, business, for want of a better phrase, you know, with all those sort of commercial disciplines. The obvious elephant in the room, I guess, when you're talking about devolution in the North East is that obviously you guys, in some respects, are lagging behind other parts of the the north the obviously it's well known that talks over a northeast mayoral authority covering all seven areas broke down the north for time had to go it alone so you don't unfortunately have the full powers or gain share funding that the likes of andy burnham or tracy brabin has got that's obviously all all well known and um, you might have seen in the commons recently the sunderland mp julie elliott said that the north of tyne authority has failed to make its mark i mean is that a fair criticism, do you think? Would, would, would you have more chance of making your mark if the authorities south of the Tyne were involved as well? Oh, I think it's all just political banter and, and people positioning things like that, don't they? So I don't think there's um, anything in the, those comments. Um, the, from a, a matter of fact, the gain share that we have is actually um, right up there with everybody else's. The thing we don't have is transport powers. And that's because there's a conurbation, the tiny weir metro system. It has 36 stations north of the river, 24 south of the river. And so you can't change the govern, governance of a train as it, as it crosses the time. Um, so that's the, the barrier to that. Um, so way back in early 2020, um, we got wind that there was going to be the city regional transport settlements now called Crust's Money, that was announced just uh, last week. Um, so Manchester got some, West Midlands, and everybody else, the other mayoral combined authorities got some money. Um, and we would have missed out on that, except I, through political channels and my officers, spoke through, through officer channels and said, look, is there a way that you can keep this to one side for us potentially? And then in the budget on March the 11th last year, um, it was announced um, that... We would be eligible for it, even though we don't have transport, if we come together as a single mayoral combined authority. And this is the government's insistence because they want accountability to a single electable figure, not through a complicated series of, or as far as the public see it, a complicated series of, of committees that come have some councillors from here and some from there. And it is fair to say that the public find that hard to navigate. You know, <laughs> I think you probably find it hard to navigate at times as well. Um, so... Um, we had that agreement, um, and then about September line last year, um, all of the regional leaders and myself met with the then local government minister, and we said, all right, let's start to explore this. We went back into the second wave. That delayed things. 
I spoke to Treasury ministers. They wrote us a letter saying, um, okay, what powers do you want? We all agreed to discuss it. Then the May elections, there was a change of governance in County Durham, which is a very complicated um, alliance of Lib Dems, Conservatives, and two different independent groups and, and lots of other people. So it's... Um, it's hard to get a single mind, perhaps, in these situations. But they've said they want to explore a county deal when the Prime Minister offered that, which slowed the whole thing down. So we wrote to government and said, look, can we have the money anyway, please, through our Joint Transport Committee? We're quite capable of dealing with it responsibly. Um, and they said, no, it has to be a single accountable there. Um, so um, we're discussing that. Those discussions are live at the moment. Um, I've spoken to my cabinet, though, just today. Um, and said, irrespective of the transport, irrespective of the, the south of the re region wants to join with us, irrespective of Northumberland are happy to join with the south of the, the region, which they may or may not be. These are all live, live discussions. And they're, they're decisions to make. You know, I'm not going to force anyone's hand on this because I want willing partners. Um, but what we are going to do is start to work up the next wave of devolution that we would want, whether it's as the north of Tyne or as the full northeast, so that when we go into perhaps expanding the north of, north of Tyne and getting transport, or even if we don't, I want, for example, expanded powers for mayoral combined authorities to be able to set up better um, mayoral, mayoral development corporations so that not only can we develop brownfield land, old industrial sites, we can actually do things in left-behind town centres so they need a bit of tweaking. Um, I want a regional wealth fund. I want the earn back that we've talked about. Um, and I would like, although this is the only one that requires a little bit of legislative change, I would like um, land value uplift so that if we extend the, the metro to go from Northumberland Park through Cobalt to, to the Royal Keys and people in Tyneside will know what that means, um, that all the land value around there will go up. So can we secure the investment against those increase in land values? So we're not waiting 20 years for central government to fund things. We can crack on. We'll be masters of our own destiny. So these are the sort of things that we're working on to say, look, transport or not, these are major economic differences. And we need more powers over skills so that we can get the, our people ready for these jobs that we're creating. Um, it's, an, it's a really ambitious and it's quite an exciting agenda. The, the saga of northeast evolution has been rumbling along for a while. And I saw, I think it was pre-budget in the day before the budget, Simon Clark, the Teesside MP, who's now a senior minister, he said it was Labour was to blame for the failure to get a, a whole North East deal done. Based on recent comments to the press, it kind of looks like it's Northumberland, a Conservative-led Northumberland, who uh, look like they're a bit, at the moment, against joining forces with the rest of the region. I mean, how close would you say a, a deal across the Tyne is at the moment? And, and if it came to it, I mean, would you consider going ahead without Northumberland if they didn't want to be want to be part of it? So to the first one, I'm, I'm going to be diplomatic and say um, that you've really, I can't speak for Northumberland's conservative group. Um, what I can tell you is that the people working with Northumberland, they get the issues involved. They understand the benefits to be had, but they want to be sure that if they're going with people who pulled out last time, that things are going to work this time. And whether they can be convinced to drop, go over the line or not, I don't know. But that's why we're working out what we actually want. Because if it's a stronger deal for everyone, I'm quite sure they'll be sensible in the end. But, you know, that requires everybody to agree. And it's not in my power to tell people. It's, it's not in my nature to tell people what to do either. Um, but would we go ahead without Northumberland? Absolutely not under any circumstances would I sign any deal that dissolves the north of time. So we've done so much good work. We've got so many projects. 
Um, for it to happen, it's got to be a reconstitution of the north of Tyne, not a dissolution. So we'll, if, if I would love it if Gateshead and Sunderland and South Tyneside want to come with us. You know, I, I know those places well. I know the people uh, who are leading those authorities. We've got really strong relationships. We've worked terrifically well through COVID. And by the way, Glenn Sanderson, the leader of Northumberland, says we've worked terrifically well through COVID across the northeast. Um, so it would have to be the case um, that we would allow everybody in would certainly change the name. I mean, we can't keep it north of Tyne. I'm not sure it's the best name anyway, to be honest. You know, places like Prudder and Hexham are south of the Tyne, you're in the north of Tyne. Um, so we would have to do that. But it would be the same team we've got carrying on with the work we've got and the benefits and the money we've got extended to everybody else so we can get the same sort of fantastic things that we're running and, you know, take the inputs and the ideas and the preferences of the people south of the river in when we're coming up with new things as well. Well, there's a lot to digest, both in devolution terms and also, you know, what you're asking for from the government. So, uh, Jamie Driscoll, thank you very much. Cheers, Rob. Now it's time to have a closer look at the big political issues in some of our towns and cities in the north. Last week, we delved into the conspiracy theories and tensions of Oldham in Greater Manchester. But now let's go 90 miles along the M62 to Kingston-upon-Hull, or Hull for short. It's home to William Wilberforce, the leader of the movement to abolish the slave trade. But what are the big issues in 2021 for this port city on the River Humber? To find out, let's talk to Angus Young local government reporter for the Hull Daily Mail. Angus, welcome to the podcast. Hi. It's good to have you on. So, number one on your list of five things to know is the importance of the Hull and East Riding devolution deal. Obviously, a lot of areas of the North now have the powers and funding that comes with Devo, but not your patch. So what's what's going on there? That's right. I'm afraid it's been a bit of a saga here. First of all, several years ago now, both Hull and East Riding were firmly behind the idea of a Yorkshire-wide devolution deal and we're amongst the first councils in in Yorkshire to sort of stick the necks out and go for that. That, as we know, sadly didn't happen. So then they switched to a Humber-wide devolution deal would have been the two councils on the north bank of the Humber joining forces with the two councils on the south bank of the Humber. Around about the start of last year, that all fell apart when the two south bank councils decided to pull out and turn their attentions towards Lincolnshire and the south rather than the north bank. And so Hull and East Riding were left basically just by themselves, if you like. So they reworked their bid to the government to have just a single Hull and East Riding devolution deal covering the two areas on the on the north bank of the Humber. Obviously, that's meant lots of delays. It's meant lots of concerns over the fact that this neck of the woods seems to be missing out on, as you mentioned, government funding and government investment decisions linked to city region areas that have got devolution deals and also have directly elected mayors. The current bid on the table, as we understand it, is that Hull and East Reading would actually settle for a devolution deal which would feature a non-mayoral-led combined authority just to get the deal over the line after all this time. Um, so it might be that we actually emerge at some point, still unclear as to when, um, with a combined authority with similar sort of powers and funding, access to funding that places like West Yorkshire and Greater Manchester have, but without a directly elected mayor. That could make a, quite an interesting dynamic, couldn't it, I suppose, as Hull is Labour-controlled and East Riding 
conservative controlled if it was switching back and forth between the two it is i mean the the, the two uh, the two council areas as you say hull is very traditionally labor east riding is very traditionally conservative led they do a lot of joint working already on things like planning and waste management but to get the two together politically in one bed so to speak would be uh, would be quite something that is one of the reasons why there's been this hesitation over going for a, a mayor-led authority because I think Labour in Hull are quite nervous of actually the prospect of having a perhaps a Conservative mayor in charge of what would be Hull, based on current um, and recent election results, including the recent Crime Commissioner results uh, earlier this year, which saw switch from Labour to Conservative. And, and equally, the East Riding traditionally slightly concerned about Hull's demands and priority, if you like, being the, ma- the major sort of city and the major employment hub of the, of the area, Hull taking precedent over East Riding. Now, we were hearing last week in Oldham that, contrary to what a lot of people might think, it, it hasn't always been a Labour-dominated area. And that's the case in, in Hull, isn't it? What's the sort of political party political history in the city? Yeah, the background in Hull is that the city council in Hull has been Labour-controlled since 2011. Previous to that, it was Lib Dem controlled for six years. But before that, Labour were broadly in charge of Hull for a period going back to the Second World War with just a couple of small exceptions. So it's always been really traditionally a Labour city. And of course, Hull has had three MPs, Labour MPs, for several years as well. Probably the best known, obviously, being John Prescott and Alan Johnson in the days of the Blair government. Unusually, the City Council holds elections every year with a third of the seats up for grabs. So that makes big changes in political control much harder to achieve in Hull rather than an all-out election every four years. So currently, Labour have 30 seats uh, in Hull, Liberal Democrats 25. There's one Conservative and one other councillor, which probably reflects really how things have gone over the last decade or so in Hull with Labour and the Lib Dems. The gap is closing at the moment and there is a feeling that next year uh, Labour could possibly lose control if the current recent trend in elections continues but it would be a a very narrow squeak if the Lib Dems took over control of Labour. It would only be by one or two seats. Now you were talking earlier about the relationship between Labour-run Hull and Tory dominated East Riding and I, I gather that the the nature of the the boundaries between the two is, is a, a bit of an, a, a political issue where you are. Yes I, I don't think many people outside of this area probably realise that Hull's current council boundary uh, is extremely tight it's only effectively a city that's sort of six to seven miles wide and beyond that you're, you're into the East Riding again so unlike York or Leeds it doesn't have any surrounding countryside or even many affluent suburbs uh, they're all in the East Riding and as a result Hull's demographic metrics usually put it at the bottom of various league tables in terms of deprivation, health outcomes, education, results, etc. So that's a bit of a disadvantage that Hull has to pretty much everywhere else in the country. And there is a bit of an imbalance there. I think a combined authority might address that because even the East Riding's largest sort of concentration of population is actually in and around Hull in the the suburbs around the city. Um, uh, There are streets near the boundary where literally the boundary cuts between the streets and so you have different bin collections on different days in the same street. It's all a bit ridiculous, really. Obviously, Hull is quite a long way from a lot of places. It's right out on the East Coast. And actually, that isolation has fostered a bit of a independent sort of DIY approach in, in recent years. What what can you tell us about that? Yes, the, the City Council decided a couple of years ago when it launched its first city plan shortly after the Labour administration took over again in 2011 and launched a city plan with a view to 
effectively coming up with its own economic prospectus for the city based on two main things, um, growing employment through high tech and green energy, and also investing heavily in tourism infrastructure to create a visitor attraction to have an economy based on a thriving visitor economy, if you like. And uh, wrapped up in that was the bid for the uh, UK City of Culture in 2017, which Hull eventually ended up winning and we became City of Culture in that year. So it was very much a case of either Hull managed a decline that was going on for several years or do something about it rather than relying on government to, to step in. Looking to the future, we were talking about Hull being a little bit geographically isolated, but actually its position on the Humber is something that it's hoping to take advantage of by way of the green economy. What Can you explain that to people? Yeah, the Humber Energy Estuary is a concept that's been pushed over the last couple of years by the two councils, local enterprise partnerships uh, and everybody else here. And it is actually a reality that's, that's happening along the Humber. And the city council played a big role in attracting Siemens Gamesa to open its uh, offshore wind turbine blade manufacturing factory here a couple of years ago. George Osborne was very instrumental in that as well, but it dated back to the days actually of Gordon Brown and uh, Peter Mandelson encouraging Siemens to invest in the UK. So it's it's come sort of through different governments as a big development on the, on the Humber with uh, manufacturing on this side of the river and the servicing side of the offshore industry uh, down in Grimsby. Now Siemens factory in Hull has created a thousand plus jobs and uh, the investment continues there. They're currently in the process of expanding the factory to double the, the size of it. The Humber now obviously also has free port status as, as part of the, the government's free port policy. Waiting to see how that's going to pan out really, but uh, there's a couple of development sites in and around Hull. There's a lot to look forward to there. Angus, thank you so much for taking us through what's going on in Hull and we will find out what's going on in another area of the north next week. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue. And it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts like this one. See you next week. Hiya, and welcome to Fetch, Chase, Eat, Sleep, Repeat, the podcast that chronicles the adventures, or indeed misadventures, of two new puppy parents. That's me, Hannah Jones. And me, Karen Price. We are the podcasting duo from teamdogs.co.uk and each week we'll be speaking to a wide range of dog lovers from all walkies of life. From glitzy ballrooms to farms, famous cobbles to ordinary homes, our wonderful guests offer us their top tips and stories about puppy parenthood. Interviews with the Cannon Hall Farm Boys. I think you've got to be really consistent with them. You've got to give them loads of affection. You've got to remember that they're your pal, they're a lifelong pal, uh, and they respond better if they think a lot of you. Um, but, but equally, you've got to nip, nip bad habits in the bud. Um, you, you know, tough love. It's just like parenting, really, you know, and you don't need to be rough, you don't need to be mean, but you do need to be firm, consistent, and show them loads of love. Strictly's Shirley Ballas. They're babies. They're babies. And, and I can only urge people out there who've, who've got the little puppies and the dogs during the pandemic, 
I really feel don't give up on them. Go to theteamdogs.co.uk, have a look, share with everybody else that's got puppy and dog teething problems. It's research, 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 and we certainly do a lot on this teamdogs.co.uk website to help people. Don't give up on them. Don't. Samia from Coronation Street. After, you know, a couple of years without having a dog, I said to Syl, it's, it's because we love them so much, because they're so amazing, that we get so sad when we have to say goodbye and we, and we should have, have them in our lives because they bring us so much joy and they, they're such a part of the family. So and, and also for the kids, it's so nice for them to have a dog around the house to grow, you know, grow up with, with having a dog and having a pet and, and knowing the responsibilities of looking after a pet and you know, experiencing that. I think it's really important. Fetch, Chase, Eat, Sleep, Repeat takes a sideways look at how to thrive with the puppies in our lives. You'll hear all about our tiny terrors, my gorgeous Springer Spaniel Sucks, and my little cockapoo, Bryn. So sit down and find out whether we are barking mad about our puppies in our dog pod. Like poo bags, you should never leave home without us. Fetch, Chase, Eat, Sleep, Repeat is a laudable production from teamdogs.co.uk. It's available on all major podcasting platforms, including Apple and Spotify. Fetch, Chase, Eat, Sleep, Repeat, coming soon. <laughs>